Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. This year marks the 20th anniversary of September 11th, 2001. It is a date of heartbreak and tragedy, and if you were of an age allowing you to remember it, it likely holds a specific spot in your memory. We remember it because of the deeds that are some of the worst that humans can do. In the days following, however, there were heroic deeds representing some of the best of what humans can do. On this episode, it was my honor to speak with a psychologist who decided to use her skills to bring healing to people at the epicenter of the destruction in New York City. Dr. Francine Toder is a psychologist, author, and a professor of psychology who lives in the San Francisco Bay Area and who originally hails from New York. As you will hear, she felt compelled to volunteer to provide her therapy skills wherever they could be used in the aftermath of 9-11 in her hometown. Her days were surreal, long, and deeply meaningful. And like many 9-11 first responders, Francine's health took a huge hit years after her service when she was diagnosed with lung cancer. Fortunately, she is in remission and her health has been restored, allowing her to share her gripping and important story. So join Francine and me as we talk about the experiences of a psychologist who was a first responder after 9-11, Dr. Francine Toder, who has asked me to call her Francine. Welcome to Super Psyched. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, Francine, you know, I've been a longtime fan. You were the first person actually to teach me positive psychology while I was in the midst of studying quite a bit about it. And I had no idea that you had served, I'm going to call it serve, in this manner, helping the first responders after the catastrophe that was 9-11 a little over 20 years ago. And it's amazing that, you know, our mutual friend, Bonnie Burnell, had shared this email with the article that you had written for Psychology Today. And it changes the way I see you, interestingly. It's amazing how we're all walking around with these stories and yours is so much of great heroism and sacrifice from where I stand. When I read it, I was just so full of emotion. There was no question I needed to interview you about your experience in doing this. And I'm so glad that you're taking some time to share your experience with my listeners. I guess the first question I would have to ask, I know you're a New Yorker and I've read the article, but I was wondering if you could share what the messaging in your heart and in your brain sounded like that compelled you to make the leap and say, I'm going to serve as a disaster mental health practitioner in the post 9-11 reality of New York City? When that event happened, it was extremely traumatic. Also, because I am a New Yorker, because I grew up in that area, because I went to college in New York. And at the same time, I was the chair of the Santa Clara County Psychological Association's Disaster Mental Health Committee. I was in charge of disaster mental health for Santa Clara County, and I thought, who better than me 
to go and serve. I am a New Yorker. I'm at a stage in my life where my kids were grown up and I could leave my private practice for a few weeks. I wasn't sure how long I'd have to be there. It turned out I was there for three weeks. I talked to my clients and I told them that I wanted to do this and they were all very supportive. My family, not so much. (laughs) I was wondering about Joe. You're married to a wonderful man for 46 years. I was wondering, how did he respond? Uh, He was all for it. But it was my kids who were fearful of me going to do, you know, jump into a dangerous situation, which they perceived as a dangerous situation. I didn't know where I would be sent. I didn't know anything about the procedures. But I'm a risk taker. And I felt this was appropriate for me. And to me, it didn't seem like sacrifice. It seemed like doing my job and Mm. being able to serve a community that I knew well. It was an opportunity to do something good on a big scale when a lot of the people in the Psychological Association who also had disaster preparedness experience didn't have the time, couldn't get away from, you know, a family with young children. So I thought, why not me? Uh, I love that. Why not me? And one of the things you mentioned in your article, Francine, is that you often hear the question, what exactly does a psychologist with disaster mental health training do in situations like this? While you address this in your article, I'd love to hear more about that in your own words. Well, I do hear that question, what on earth were you doing at Ground Zero? And since my role is was to support first responders, and that included police, firefighters, other kinds of responders like dog handlers or dogs that were trained to sniff out and find humans who were still alive, those kinds of people. I also helped bystanders, the people on the ground who were traumatized, and I can tell you more about that, but in some of the places where I was, the local people were traumatized. And oh, yeah. It just activated for them old experiences. There was a a restaurant in Lower Manhattan in New York that couldn't be open. I mean, nothing was open. It was, there was rubble. Ground zero was terrible. But there was a restaurant, an Italian restaurant in Lower Manhattan that opened its doors to all first responders for a meal anytime, 24 hours a day. They didn't have enough food, so they sent word to every restaurant in Lower Manhattan. And there were trucks that were delivering food, and that was made in that restaurant to give away to first responders. It was a great, huge restaurant, and there were tables set up where people could be there 24 hours a day. And one of my jobs was to walk around and talk to people because there was a great worry that first responders who aren't often the kind of people who are going to tell you how they're feeling. I mean, they're trained to just act and they're acting in an emergency situation. My job was to go and talk to them and see if I could pick up some of what they were feeling, give them an opportunity to vent so that you could prevent some of the aftermath, which results in PTSD. Sure. So one of the things that you were trying to do is mitigate the likelihood of PTSD occurring after this acute stress. And you were talking and allowing them to discharge. I have this image of you kind of almost like a a bee pollinating flowers, like walking and just having meaningful brief exchanges that relied on your training. A lot of people think, oh, you know, a friend could do this. And oftentimes 
due to the training that psychologists receive, this is not just a friendly conversation. This is actually a healing interchange. And I'm wondering, yeah, if you could speak a little bit to that. Well, the goal was healing. Well, first allowing them to vent so that they don't have to carry this with them. The opportunity to heal after that, but also an opportunity to assess. If I were to perceive that this is a dangerous situation, then I would have some responsibility to act on. And I didn't see that, actually. These people are very well trained. But again, one of the things, one of my responsibilities was to go to ground zero to actually the very, very place where the the remains at the building stood. And there was an outpost that was created for firefighters and police, kind of a headquarters right there. And one of my jobs was to bring coffee and donuts daily to that site. We would carry these giant urns and, you know, wear our masks, wear our hard hats, and then go to these places. And it wasn't, I mean, yes, providing coffee and donuts through the Red Cross, but what it was is an opportunity, again, to spend time with people to assess, you know, the traumatic experiences that they've had and to sort of support them, listen to them, and if necessary, do an assessment if they weren't functioning adequately or there was something going on that was not safe. Yeah, so your role was quite multifaceted in terms of the ability to provide care as well as to assess for their safety. And one of the things that I imagine was somewhat of a limiting factor in something that you probably hadn't done a lot of was providing psychotherapy while wearing a mask and goggles. And I would think that given how important the human face is in these types of exchanges that you and I have in our work, that having these places covered might have provided something of a barrier. How did you overcome that? How did you connect with people? The masks were inadequate, and one of the things we did, because it was really hard to breathe there, and nobody really thought about the consequences of the toxicity in the air at that time. So they weren't wearing masks inside this facility. I see. They could have been, and I took my mask off as well. I wasn't wearing goggles. I was just wearing a hard hat. I see. Construction, you know, the construction. Nope, sure. I still have it, you know, it has a red cross on it, and... I think that's a very meaningful symbol for a really important time in your life. Yeah, it, it, it is. And so the, we made contact and basically there was a lot of emotion expressed through people's faces. And maybe I had to kind of assess what was going on inside from observing the nonverbal qualities of, of right. interaction. That you are schooled to interpret in a split second. Yeah. The other experience was going to Staten Island that I did on a regular basis because that is where it used to be called the landfill, but it is the place where all of the body parts were brought to sort. And there was a big facility there and there were people working there. And my job really was to do the same thing there, to comfort, to assess to provide support of whatever kind I could and to give people an opportunity to talk about that very grotesque situation. There were clergy people there from all faiths. I didn't write that in the article. There wasn't space for that. But there were rabbis and there were priests and there were ministers all praying over the body parts because nobody could be identified. 
It was quite something. I mean, there were trucks there from morgues and coroner's office, and there were people working there. So my job was to help people stay sane, basically. And so, so I go around on, the, you know, during the lunchtime, basically, and walk from table to table, sit down, have a cup of coffee with someone. There's something about having food at the same time that you're having a conversation that allows people to be a little bit more relaxed. Can you say more about that common denominator of eating that we share with all our fellow humans? It sounds like that really, it's funny as I hear you even say that the word companion actually is derived from the idea of breaking bread together, the word pan in the middle and kolm together. So there's something about it kind of, it sounds like it increased the speed with which you were able to establish rapport and companionship with the people I mean, people are used to eating with others and talking, so it makes it a little bit easier to reach them, which it otherwise wouldn't be if they were focused on the job at hand. And I imagine they were kind of thinking something like, you know, I'm gonna, I got to eat anyway, so I'll talk to this person. And lo and behold, it was actually a really good thing, even if well, I, might have had- I don't think I did any eating. I think I would like hold a cup of coffee and walk around, but... I would just sit down and engage people in conversation. And, and again, that was the idea was to support everybody. There was a subsequent plane crash that happened on November 7th. And when it happened, I was in a Red Cross vehicle on the way to Manhattan. I was stationed actually in an old World War II naval air station at the end of Brooklyn, where it sort of became Queens. And it was called Floyd Bennett Field. That's where I was stationed. And that's where we had the Red Cross vehicle going out to Manhattan every day. And on the way one day to Manhattan, I saw an explosion at the window to the left side, which was Queens. And I didn't know what it was, but we were heading the other way. And I got a phone call. I had my cell phone. It was an old style cell phone in those days. Mm -hmm. Big objects. But I picked it up and it was my husband and he said he was watching the news in California and there was an airplane crash in Rockaway Beach and they think it was another terrorist attack. And I said to the driver, we have to go there. So they turned the vehicle around and we headed straight for Rockaway Beach. And we were the first responders to get there Wow! after it happened. And what I did was I set up you know, a situation where my job was to assess what was happening with, not with the plane crash, because it was the, the firefighters were there putting out the fire, but the people standing around were traumatized. And some of them were traumatized because they had lost husbands or sons or parents at the World Trade Center two weeks ago. A lot of the people in Staten Island, sort of a working class area, their families were first responders. So it was another trauma. And it wasn't until maybe a day later when it was realized that that was a plane crash that had nothing to do with 9-11. Oh, I mean, just to think about how just as everybody was trying to come together and work through a horrific trauma, then comes another plane crash just to just re-expose everyone to additional fear. I find myself wondering also, as you're describing your day in the article, it started at around 4.30 a.m. You worked very hard until very late at night and you said that sleep did not come easily to you. 
what that writing did. And I find myself wondering, how did you apply self-care so that you didn't become a victim yourself to, say, vicarious trauma or to caregiver fatigue? One of the things I decided to do at the end of my very long day is sit down and eat a big meal and with some of the other respondents. I mean, I was living in a hotel that the Red Cross assigned. And by the way, the whole thing unfolded in a very, very peculiar way. You know, I got my orders to go to New York and I wasn't told where I'd be going. I just was told, you know, get on a flight. They'd made the arrangements for the flight. And they said, when you get to New York, call this number. And it was about 10 o'clock at night when I got to the airport, called the number and they said, well, you're going to go to the certain hotel in Queens and somehow get there. Just yeah. figure out how you're going to get there. But yeah, you're going to get there. Gonna get there. And it was like midnight not, when I arrived. And it's not like there were just a, you know, like a, a nice line of taxis. Remember, this was right after. Exactly. Catastrophe. This, in fact, even the flight, this was one of the first flights out because there were no flights for a while. It was very frightening. And even flying was frightening because nobody knew if there were still, you know, terrorist attacks that would be taking place. So I got there and then I told her I, I had to be at the bus stop at five o'clock in the morning where a bus would transport me to Floyd Bennett Field, which was 30 minutes away. So at night I had a big meal with some of the other Red Cross people and and they were amazing. These Red Cross volunteers Mm. came from all over the country, Mm -hmm. lots from the Midwest and the South, from small towns. You would never expect this. They had nothing to do with New York, but they were people who were involved in the Red Cross and, and they had good hearts. And they cared about human suffering. So one of the things that might happen for a first responder, as well as people who deal with any type of kind of catastrophes in general, might feel kind of a cognitive dissonance. How dare I take care of myself when so many are suffering? And yet there's the paradox, of course, whereby you must take care of yourself right. if you are going to have anything to offer. Well, and yeah, so yeah, it sounds like that meal was... Well, the meal was a big deal. I had a yeah. really big meal, the kind of meals I usually don't eat. I'm one of these people who eats like a rabbit, you know, <laughs> a little here, a little there all day long. But this was a big meal. And then I would get back to my room and I would have a bath, which I usually don't do, a long bath with really hot water. And I keep adding water and I would just sit in that bathtub for probably a half an hour or more, just trying to unwind my body. And then I would write. Writing is healing for me. You know, when I was a child, what I wanted to do was to be a journalist. What I wanted to do was to be an investigative journalist, the kind that goes into war zones. Yeah, right. that was not a role that was appropriate for a girl. <laughs> At that time, nobody thought it was, it, was, it was not supported by society. Or my family. Or your family. And in high school, I still wanted to be a journalist and I studied Latin. So that would help me be more familiar with the structure of languages. And But I never got to a college where I could study journalism. And I forgot about that for many, many years. But I am a writer by nature. That's amazing. And so that was a source of healing. I find myself wondering people who may be listening to this episode may at one time or another feel compelled to respond to a call to assist in a similar way. What advice would you give them? Well, first, understand your own temperament and your own capacity to deal with trauma. You know, have you had any experiences in your life that would allow you to be in a situation where you didn't know what was going to happen next? 
and your ability to act quickly when you needed to. If you know this about yourself, then you're probably a good candidate. You have to be prepared to breathe, to meditate, if that's a way of your calming yourself, mm-hmm. or for some people, pray. And you have to be willing to be separated you know, from your family for some time and know that you really have nobody else to talk to, and but you have to process things internally and be able to do that well enough. So I'd love to hear in your own words, I mean, you were describing walking in areas that you used to walk before it turned to rubble. You had to process things internally by seeing horrific images that you would never be able to erase from your mind. And I'm wondering what feelings and thoughts did you need to tolerate and process as you were dealing with everything you were in real time? You know, I sort of turned off the feeling part of me Mm -hmm. in order to function. Deep feelings would interfere probably. Maybe what I did was compartmentalize. You know, I, I stored my feelings and I acted rationally and with the intellect that I have rather than with the emotion that I have. I just became sort of robotic in situations, but still my job was to kind of emotionally be there for others, but store my own emotions away, which I apparently can do. You know, other people may not have the temperament to be able to do that, but somehow I was able to. Yeah, but it does. I mean, I refer to compartmentalization as, you know, a really great short-term coping strategy, but if it becomes kind of a long-term go-to, it can be problematic. And I'm wondering, after you returned, and of course, we're going to return back to New York in just a second, but after you returned from this, I imagine that some of that needed to come out. Some of the things that you had compartmentalized needed to come out in some way, shape, or form, whether it was in writing or in talking or perhaps your own therapy. Can you describe a little bit of that, perhaps some of the stuff that couldn't be expressed while you were attending in this kind of triage fashion of, hey, right now my attention goes to the crisis. But then I wonder if later on some of the compartmentalized presented itself. For me, I think it came through mostly in my writing and talking to my husband. He's a good listener Mm. and he's empathic. You know, he was able to receive that. He is a child of Holocaust survivors, Mm. so he's very familiar with trauma. So he was able to take that in, and he was sort of my primary source. And I really, the truth is, I didn't talk that much about it. I'm sort of like the, if you talk to people who are military people who come back from a war zone, they're not really talkative to their families or friends about what happened. Some of it just never gets said. And again, I was able to process a lot of that internally. I didn't use therapy as a tool, although I think that's a very good resource for lots of people. But somehow over time, I could assimilate and make, I can't ever make sense about what happened, but I can sort of normalize the situation once Mm -hmm. I was home and getting back into my own life. So I I was not traumatized. And I frankly would do it again. I'm getting a little old to do it, but but I would. Yeah, and you you would describe yourself as the person, you know, to me in passing as someone who kind of has the DNA of a first responder or an emergency room doctor. 
And I think that's phenomenal that you've got that. And I find myself thinking also about soldiers who don't perhaps talk about it because I am a believer in what Edith Egger, the great psychologist who was also a Holocaust survivor, she says, you have to feel it to heal it. And I've often thought that, you know, if you don't get into the driver's seat of your emotions and talk about them, they will drive you and you will be the unwitting passenger to them. And I think therapy is an incredibly important tool. Not everybody's married to the great Joe Hustein, who has such a great ear. It sounds like you really scored on that department. But for people who may be coming back from war-torn zones but or other traumatic places where they were either helping or just happened to be an unwitting bystander, how might therapy help? I think therapy is an opportunity to go and process the material that is a key to, you know, your mental health. I also think there are other ways of engaging. For some people, there are physical ways. You could do that through dance. Years ago, I incorporated some dance therapy into the work I was doing. You can do it through art. You can do it through music even. There are just so many ways. Uh, not everyone will choose therapy. I think that is would be the first option. But some people can express things in nonverbal ways more effectively. Maybe even having a pet mm -hmm. where they can, you know, talk to an animal who will never be judgmental. So there are a variety of ways, but I think the worst thing is to keep the feelings bottled up. Writing is, a, is another tool, yeah. you know, is it another way that like-minded people, that would help too. The problem is when you come back, lots of people don't understand what that experience was like. They didn't oh. share it. They don't understand what trauma is. And so I think a group experience is probably the most helpful kind of thing. You know, I was talking to a war veteran who met somebody who was in the same battle as he had been. And this was decades after the experience itself. And there was something about talking to someone who had been there that was so incredibly healing. Somebody who saw what he saw and could kind of really validate what had transpired just from another person's perspective. And I think that this is a non-mutually exclusive proposition. A person can do art, can do music, can do group therapy or group talking. Certainly, I, and you know I'm a huge fan of the idea of pets and all the healing that they provide. And therapy can be one of the tools. And I do like kind of a multimodal approach to dealing with complex situations such as trauma. So I think this is uh, really useful what you're offering. Francine, after going and doing what you did, I imagine that your worldview changed somewhat. And I'm wondering, what did you learn about human behavior that you didn't know before you served? Well, in a crisis situation, people come together. You know, there's some relevance to our situation today. If suddenly a UFO came down to Earth and we all had a common enemy, all of us would come together. We wouldn't be having the political strife that we're having now. We would have a common enemy. Well, the common enemy at 911 was this disaster. And I saw people in New York do things that I'd never seen before. I mean, the taxis used to honk their horns a lot, and I didn't hear any of that. It was a really quiet and subdued place where people were kinder and gentler to each other. And I think that is one of the things that happened. I don't know whether it's continued. I haven't been back to New York in a while. 
But I do think it changed the character of New York. And I don't know about the rest of the country, because one of the things that happens over time is that people forget. And there are lots of people alive today who really don't really know much about 911 or what happened there. So let's talk about that. The forgetting versus obsessing. There's, you know, on, on the one end of the continuum would be just forgetting that it ever happened. The other end would be obsessing about it and, and not being able to live life. I'm wondering, how can we properly remember this, keep it as a source of instruction and perhaps caution as well as inspiration to us? How can we hold 9-11 in our minds? People do things according to their nature, their personality, their family history. People who are obsessive probably going to keep obsessing. I mean, I think you need to remind yourself that time moves on and that we're in a different place in our lives right now. People grieve, people heal. I don't know now how many people are obsessing about that. I'd say even the, you know, the first responders, many of whom were seriously injured, many died, some were permanently impaired physically. You know, we've seen a lot of these people on TV. They all feel like what they did was the right thing. And I don't think they feel heroic, and certainly I don't feel heroic, but it was the right thing to do. And you feel good about yourself, even though the situation was so horrific. Forgetting, I think that's a natural thing that happens. People move on, and if you remind them, the feelings may come back, but not in the painful way that they first exhibited themselves. To pivot a little, you know, Francine, one of the heartbreaking pieces for me in your article was that, like many first responders, you were diagnosed with lung cancer about 10 years after you provided services. And thankfully, it appears that you've recovered and others weren't so fortunate. I was wondering what types of services or protections do you wish were available to first responders who may experience health risks after rendering their services? People were issued masks at the time, but by the time I got there, it was a couple of weeks after the attack and most of the good masks you know, the equivalent of N95, or there were masks that have built-in respirators in them. They were all gone. So nobody thought much about it. We were using kind of cheap masks that really weren't that protective. People didn't think much about it. I mean, you had a, a job to do, and face protection seemed like, well, it's not anything you should pay attention to. And uh, th this happens in situations all over. You know, even today we have these gigantic forest fires in California and firefighters are going into situations not entirely prepared because there are just too many fires and not enough firefighters. So what do I wish would happen is that people would pay attention to the potential consequences of putting themselves in a dangerous situation. And what could that look like? I mean, is there, are there any protections that perhaps services that the government could offer or that, you know, well-intentioned people who live in the neighborhoods where these things are happening? Like, what are some things that could be offered as well as perhaps, you know, I'm, I'm guessing adequate masks so that people don't get lung cancer for doing the right thing. Yeah. One of the things that happened afterwards was there was a committee set up to assess the needs of first responders who were injured and 
pay maybe reparations or medical bills for people who qualified. I never sought those. I mean, first of all, for 10 years, I didn't really think about my health. When I realized that I had lung cancer and it was, I mean, not 100% related to ground zero, but there were no other causes. I'm not a smoker. It wasn't the smoker kind of lung cancer. But, you know, I can't attribute it 100% to that situation, nor could anybody else. Not everybody became ill. Some people did. But you could get your medical services paid for if you qualified. And there were a lot of rules to qualify. And they're still dealing with the payments to the families who lost somebody. And this is a really long process. There are a lot of people involved. But I didn't need those payments and I didn't qualify because I didn't spend enough time at ground zero. You know, I came in a van and I spent a few hours and I went back. You had to be there a certain number of hours per day to qualify. So Francine, is there anything I should have asked but haven't yet asked? Well, I'm actually going to read a section that I wrote in this article. When we got to Rockway Beach, we were some of the first responders my goal was to talk to local residents who were traumatized by the crash from either seeing the crash itself or the destruction of homes, their own or their neighbors. I saw disbelief, anger, fear on their faces as they assembled at the barriers constructed at the crash site. A temporary morgue was set up within their view and they came alone. They came in families. Kids came in two or threes wandering by to cry, inquire about the safety of their neighbors. And these are the people that I met with. The first responders at that point were very busy and didn't need any help from me. But I had a walkie-talkie and I was in communication with them. A woman rocked as she sat on her porch steps facing the burned out remains of the house across the street. And another woman sat in shock. Her house was demolished by a piece of the plane sitting in what had been her front yard. Even though all of these tangible reminders of their former life were taken by the fire, she was focused on a mother and a child, neighbors across the street who had perished in the fire. She was also reliving an earlier loss. And this was another thing that happened to a lot of people. It reactivated a memory of her previous loss. And it was the death of her husband, who was a police officer who was killed in the line of duty nine years ago. So here she was again, dealing with that trauma and the current one. The earlier horrible events of September 11th were recalled with renewed intensity and superimposed on the current loss. Over and over, I saw people being re-traumatized, the crash being just the latest assault on their lives. Rockaway lost 84 people at the World Trade Center. Now this, you know, it was almost unbearable. And then there was the owner of the Harbor Light Bar and Grill on the corner near the crash, who lost his son in September 11th at the World Trade Center. And he opened his place to all disaster workers to use the facilities and to relax. And his kitchen made a huge submarine sandwich for me to take to the woman who lost her child at no charge. And then the outpouring of caring for others was evident everywhere, which was very heartwarming in a community that was in mourning. And as I witnessed this drama unfolding, I remembered that in spite of New Yorkers usually rough and seemingly detached style, there is a passion and compassion 
that surfaces when times get rough. Mm. So, you know, this was, and my job was to go, just to go around and deal with the people who were traumatized, the bystanders, which was not my, uh, you know, regular job. It was sort of the extra job. And in the meantime, to coordinate with firefighters and police. And then the people who investigate air crashes came and my job was to coordinate with them also. So that was a horrific scene as well. Yeah, just hear, you know, I've read the article a few times and just hearing you read it in your own voice is just is really, really poignant and profound. So I'm glad to hear hear this article, even a portion of it in your own voice. You know, I'm going to ask you one more question, and that is because you didn't have a role model and because there was so much wind at your front, as I'm describing it. Did you ever feel like an imposter? Did you ever suffer from imposter syndrome? Oh, I do today. I always, yeah. How do you plow through that? I just keep moving. You know, I tell myself, you shouldn't be here. Who are you? What are you doing? I mean, even in Palo Alto, I don't belong in Palo Alto because people here are wealthy and come from different kind of homes. They know how to eat with the correct fork. Uh huh. You know, I'm an imposter. I don't belong here. I belong in East Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. which is a, an ethnically diverse working class area. That's where I'm from. So I, yes, I've always felt like an imposter. And I just go, well, that's just the way it is. Keep going. I am one of these people that no matter what the barrier is, I will find a way around it. That's in my nature. So Francine, you mentioned the idea that you obviously are female. And at the time you were growing up, it was really a limiting belief of society that girls didn't do a whole bunch of things that you wanted to do. Can you tell me a little bit about your upbringing and some of the messages you received about who you were supposed to be versus who you were? Well, I grew up in a household with parents who were uneducated. They had a lot of problems of their own and I was independent very early. I led two lives. I led the traditional life that they wanted to me, being a pretty girl and dating a lot. But I also had this other side of me and that wanted to be a guy that did guy things. I did not want to grow up to be my mother. Mm-hmm. I did not want to grow up to be any woman that I'd ever met, mm. uh, which were women like my mother. I looked at the people around me and I saw guys thinking about what they were going to do when they grew up. And I wanted to do that too. So I sort of had a separate, I don't know, maybe I had a guardian angel on my shoulder, or maybe I had just, you know, a separate identity. And so when I was in high school, I studied Latin because I wanted to be a writer, a journalist, an investigative reporter that went into war zones, which no women did. And my father was really angry when he found out I was studying Latin. He thought I should be studying shorthand and typing. Mm, so you so can be a secretary. That, I did that too. And I was told that I was, you know, really not college bound. And the guidance counselor said, you're not going to college. So I graduated early from high school because I just wanted to get into the workforce. And my first job was at Time Magazine in Manhattan. And that was the first place that I met college-educated people. And I found a way to go to college at night. And my parents had no understanding and they had no support for that. But I went to the local 
college. It was a city college downtown. And I took some courses at night. And the night dean asked me why I was a night student. And I said, because I'm not the type of person that goes to college. But I still wanted to. And he said, well, I think you should be the kind of person that goes to college. Why don't you go during the day? And I said, well, I need to work. They said, why don't you take a job at night and go to school during the day? So I did. You know, I was positioning myself at that point to be in a very different world from my family. Then later I married the first guy who was leaving New York and going to graduate school that I knew from college. And I went off and started that adventure of higher education, which my family had no idea about. They had no idea who I was. And that was the beginning of of becoming the person I wanted to be. And what kind of blows me away as I hear this is that you had wind at your front in the form of people saying, you can't do this. And you had no North Star, as in no role model of somebody who was actually doing this, who, by the way, was also female. And yet somewhere deep in the recesses of your heart and mind, you found what you needed And it sounds like it revealed itself little by little as you progressed. Right. And I didn't know where I was going, but I knew I was going. And I just kept going. And I didn't really think I'm going to get a doctorate and become a psychologist. I just kept pursuing education as salvation. And I'm so glad you did, Francine, because you've had such an impact on so many people as a psychologist, uh, also as an, you know, somebody who's been very actively helping local chapters of our community. Uh, you've been the president of the County Psychological Association. You've taught courses. And as I mentioned at the very beginning, you were the first person to provide a lecture on the thing that is the centerpiece of my life, and that is positive psychology. So, yeah, I'm so glad you found it within you. Well, I spent 26 years as a college faculty member. Also, yeah, that that was my first major career. The last question I like to ask is something of a fantastical one. In fact, it's entirely fantastical. And Francine, if you had the magical powers to confer upon all humanity, one insight as it related to your work in post 9-11 New York, what would that insight be? And how do you think it would benefit individuals as well as society at large? I would probably start with saying bad things happen. You know, there are bad actors in the world, and that probably will always be that sort of in the nature of humans. Animals don't do bad things unless they're provoked or they're hungry, basically. But humans are different. So there are always going to be bad actors, and bad things can always happen, and there's always a potential for that. But humans also have the capacity to learn from it to grow from it and to figure out how to do things better the next time. So I would like people to be able to be empathic to others, to if we could all have a little more empathy, I think the world would be a better place. And to recover from trauma, it does happen. And there is a life after that. It helps if people have a belief in something. So it really does. I mean, religion can play a role in this or spirituality can play a role in this. Whatever it is that makes you feel sane. Mm -hmm. For me, it's nature. It's walking in wilderness, hiking 
on a place where there are trees. And that's very important to me. And that's how I heal. You know what I'm taken with about your story, amongst many other things, is the confluence of the best and the worst that humans have to offer. The worst from the attackers and the best from the responders, as well as some of the bystanders who were helping out by giving large amounts of food and New Yorkers really being loving and kind to each other. It sounds like in spite of the fact that the minority of people may do horrible things and horrible things have happened and will happen, but it sounds like the majority of people really do have these great human traits of empathy and humans great potential. And one of the other things that we didn't talk about, but I feel like just mentioning is the concept of post-traumatic growth. And you are, uh, I know, a fellow positive psychologist. And one of the great findings in trauma is that, yes, indeed, what doesn't kill us could make us stronger. I always say with a caveat, it depends on how we attend to that thing that didn't kill us. Uh, do we do it healthfully, like talk about it with friends, engage in art, therapy, and et cetera? Or do we try to drink it away or engage in less healthy coping? And Francine, for sure, you get engaged in very healthful coping in the form of writing, taking a bath, self-care, recognizing the general meaning of what you were doing because we are such meaning-based creatures. And I can tell that what was really guiding you was meaning as well as having an incredible relationship with your primary romantic partner, Joe, and having the vulnerability to share with him what things were like and his capacity for empathy and providing you with the airspace. So I'm just so grateful for all that you've shared, all of the wisdom you've dropped during this interview. And I'm so delighted to know this part of you that I would not have known if not for, you know, our colleagues share on our listserv. So this has been great. Thank you so much, Francine. Oh, you're very welcome. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Right on. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe.